This is Straight Talk for Real Life, produced by Hewlett Packard Enterprise. If you've ever lost something or someone that truly matters to you, you have undoubtedly felt the pain of grief. It has been said that when we lose someone we love, we lose a part of ourselves. You wonder how you can ever move forward when your life has been forever changed. We grieve because we love, and that love never dies. Grieving is the process of learning to live on without that loved one in our lives, but knowing that the love they left behind is still there. The only thing that reduces the power of difficult emotions is naming them. You know, when, when we name them, when we acknowledge them, we reduce their power over us. So often, since we're, you know, we've all been kind of conditioned in this society that is so focused on positivity and, you know, I'm good, I got this, etc. The idea of actually admitting that you're struggling, it's a really difficult one for a lot of us to wrap our minds around. And so I wanted people to understand that even though it is often hard to admit and acknowledge these more challenging emotions, that is the one thing that we know for sure helps. If you or someone you know is experiencing grief, we hope this special episode has the information you need to better understand and accept grief for what it is. Grief is love. It's not just about the life lost, but the life lived. Keep listening. I hope you'll be glad you did. The purpose of this podcast is to foster discussion, not to provide advice. The information shared should never be used as an alternative to obtaining personalized advice from a healthcare professional, and listeners should seek such advice independently if they have any questions related to their physical or mental health. This podcast hosts different viewpoints, and the opinions of the speakers do not necessarily reflect the views of HPE. Hello, I'm Bob Peacock. Welcome to Straight Talk for Real Life. Losing someone or something that we love is one of the most traumatic and challenging experiences in life. Anyone who has gone through it knows just how physically and mentally exhausting grief can be. According to speaker and author Megan Marshman, grief is our response to life not turning out the way we wanted or expected. When that happens, it's painful, and you wish you could just fix it. If you're listening and you're grieving right now, we hope today's episode helps you understand why you're feeling the way you do. But it's not about fixing it, because what you're feeling is completely normal. My goal in this episode is to help you better understand grief so that you can learn to live and find joy again, even with your loss. My guest today is Marissa Renee Lee, the author of a book titled Grief is Love, Living with Loss. In addition to being a gifted writer whose articles have appeared in Glamour, Vogue, and The Atlantic, she is also a popular and eloquent speaker who has appeared on MSNBC and CNN. Marissa is a Harvard graduate and a former appointee in the Obama White House. She served as the Deputy Director of Private Sector Engagement, a senior advisor on the Domestic Policy Council, and as the managing director of the My Brother's Keeper Alliance. And if all that's not enough, she's the CEO of a social impact consulting firm called Beacon Advisors, co-founder of the digital platform Supportal, and founder of The Pink Agenda, a national organization that raises money for breast cancer care, research, and awareness. Marissa, welcome. Thank you so much. I read your book, and having experienced my own grief in my life when my father died just before the pandemic began, and just a few weeks ago, as I was preparing for this episode, one of my young nephews very unexpectedly died of complications from COVID. I know many listeners have experienced the same losses over the past couple of years. Your book made so much sense to me. It is beautifully written, and it's a powerfully candid look at what you experienced when your mom died. So let's start there. Would you share your story and what inspired you to write your book, Grief is Love? Absolutely. Um, so when I was a kid, 
my mom got sick one day and she never got better. And it turned out she had multiple sclerosis. And growing up, I thought that, you know, being the child of a sick parent who had become disabled and who I helped to care for, you know, I figured that would be kind of the hardest thing that happened to me in life. And I decided I would cope by just working really hard so I could get into a good school, get a good job and practically help care for my parents as an adult. And it worked out pretty well. I worked my way into Harvard and a couple days before I was set to graduate, my mom was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer. Mm. That is on top of the multiple sclerosis. And I was there when she received the diagnosis. And in that moment, it was as if the earth opened up beneath my feet. You know, things that I had previously counted on, things that I thought I could really rely on in life, like my parents making it to an old age and, you know, being around to see me get married and, you know, have children, et cetera. All of a sudden, everything was gone. And I didn't know it at the time, but that was absolutely the beginning of my grief journey. I wound up taking a year off after I graduated from college just to help my mom and dad manage this very complicated health situation with MS and cancer. And a year after that, I was at work on Wall Street and splitting my time between my job and my parents' house, helping to take care of my mom. And I was just riddled with anxiety. You know, I was so sad knowing that my mom was going to die sometime soon, but, you know, not really knowing when. Mm -hmm. And I also beat myself up a lot because it felt silly to be so upset about a death that hadn't happened yet. Now, of course, I know that's called anticipatory grief, but my hmm. 22, 23 year old self just, you know, I just thought I was being silly and frankly too emotional. In 2007, when I was 24, we decided it no longer made sense for my mom to undergo treatment for either of her diseases. She was very sick at that point, had been through sepsis infections and tuberculosis, you know, because her immune system was so weakened from the cancer. And at that point, I committed to doing everything I could to prepare to lose my mom. You know, I, I did all the research on grief. I had a spreadsheet with all of her end of life wishes and, you know, the details around who she wanted to give certain things to. And I had everything meticulously organized. I brought my type A Harvard Wall Street yeah. personality to her end of life, thinking I could make it easier for her you know, for my father, my sister, myself. Um, and then she died. And I was destroyed. And very quickly realized that while some of the practical preparations were useful, most of my preparations weren't helpful at all. You know, when I got hit with this just overwhelming wave of grief. Yeah. And I you know, I struggled with anxiety and depression and sleeplessness. I lost 25 pounds, like all the things that you hear about happening to people when they go through a significant loss. And I also beat myself up a lot. You know, I felt like because I had prepared, it shouldn't hit me as hard. You know, I knew this was going to happen. I had a great relationship with my mom. So, you know, no, no regrets or anything like that. So why are you still so upset? And I, I talked to myself like that for the first six months mm. after she died. And I wish I could remember what was the thing that caused my mindset to shift. But one day in August of 08, I said, you know what? Like, this is ridiculous. Like, you, you are not the problem, Marissa. Like, there, there isn't anything wrong with you. The problem is in how we talk about grief and loss and how we treat people who are grieving in this country. And I wrote in an old notebook back then, you know, I am going to write a book about grief and what it really is. And it is not going to be sad and depressing. And it is going to be a New York Times bestseller. Those were the declarations <laughs> I made at, you know, 25 and a half years old. Um, and so far, we've hit two out of those three <laughs> boxes, I think. I'm still waiting on the New York Times, so please buy my book. Um, but I didn't start writing that book until 12 years later in 2020. And the thing that pushed me over the edge and led me to a place where 
I, I had no choice but to write the book was the loss of a much wanted pregnancy in late 2019. Oh. Um, at that point, my husband and I had been on a journey to become parents since 2016. And this was our last shot. You know, this was the last embryo. We were deep in IVF land, having spent thousands and thousands of dollars and, you know, countless doctor's appointments and tests and exams and all the things. And we finally found ourselves pregnant and we were, we were just so happy. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like it was like next level. And then we lost the pregnancy and the loss made me like very, very physically sick. And the emotional toll of the loss was overwhelming. You know, all of a sudden I found myself grieving the loss of this pregnancy, you know, grieving the plan that we had for our family, grieving this like deep, deep desire that I felt around becoming a mom that, you know, I, I couldn't, I couldn't bring this plan to fruition. And then grieving the loss of my mom all over again, because, you know, those right. days, those early days and weeks and months after the pregnancy loss, like all I wanted was her, you know, I wanted her comfort. I wanted her guidance. I wanted her support. I wanted her like, like just attention and love and care. Um, and obviously I didn't, I didn't have any of that. And then a few months after our loss, I found myself grieving the situation that, you know, we all dealt with together, the global pandemic. And so all of my usual grief coping mechanisms and distractions were taken away. And so I was grieving this deep personal loss while also living in a world consumed yeah. with grief. And I started writing. Like I just, I wrote like crazy because I needed to do something to process what I was going through. And eventually some of my like journal entries turned into an article that Glamour published Mother's Day 2020 about, you know, the loss of my mom and why I think this whole concept of getting over it is silly and foolish. And it went viral. And that led to the book Grief is Love that you recently read, Bob. That's awesome. Well, for anyone who has experienced grief, it feels awful. It's debilitating. Uh, you feel so many emotions, anger, sadness, loneliness. You feel abandoned. Um, but I think the way you explain why you're feeling all these horrible things is really important and it's really helpful. So in your own experience, what is grief? So I defined grief and grief is love as the repeated experience of learning to live in the midst of a significant loss. And I defined it like that because I felt like for myself, you know, the grief, it's not something that has ever stopped. You know, my mom's been dead for over 15 years now. And there are still moments when I like actively grieve and I'm really sad, you know, her birthday, the anniversary of her passing, turning 40 was a big one for me. You know, this is the decade that my mom never made it out of. And there's just something very weird about getting to the place where, you know, you would be a peer with the parent who's no longer here. Um, and so I, I, I really believe that when we have these foundational losses, you know, a parent, a partner, a child, a best friend, someone you define as one of your people, we have to constantly make accommodations for that loss. So like, for instance, I just reached out to a dear friend whose mother passed away late last year. And I asked her, you know, what, what's your plan for Mother's Day? Because even though, you know, she's, she's wrapped her mind around the fact that her mom is no longer here, this woman is a mother herself, like you have to think about those types of events and things differently because they're always going to remind you of what you no longer have. Um, right. So yeah, I, I think we, I think those of us who've had these kinds of losses, like you have to plan on making these sort of accommodations for yourself, I think indefinitely, because you're never going to forget about your people. I think you're such an amazing writer. Uh, well, you, you wrote, 
Grief is the experience of navigating the loss of a loved one, figuring out how to deal with the absence of your loved one forever. It's understanding that the pain you feel because of their absence is because you've experienced a great love. That love doesn't end when they die, and you don't have to get over it. You can live a full life where we continue to love them, grieve them, and honor them on our terms. I just think that's beautiful. You. Um, you seem like such a, a happy person. You're <laughs> one of those kind of people that is so accomplished and you shine. Um, yet you've experienced this traumatic or these traumatic losses that you are still grieving today. I know that there are people listening right now who are in the midst of grief and they're hurting and they wonder if they'll ever be able to find joy in their lives again. How do you move forward and how would you encourage them? So I think a few things, you know, first of all, I want to validate the experience of deep pain and suffering that often accompanies grief. You know, I, I absolutely have a big, happy, joyful, full life. And I'm very, very, very thankful for that. Um, but there are still moments where I struggle. You know, right now, my husband's mother is dying from stage four breast cancer, which is the same thing I lost my mom to. You know, it, there's been a lot of moments in the last year that have been really traumatizing for both of us. Um, and I think, I think what allows you to get to a place of joy is being honest about the pain. Um, because I, I don't believe in, you know, bad things happen. So you have to turn them into good things, you know, take your lemons and make lemonade. Like, I think, I think that's ridiculous when it comes to grief, honestly, I think it's about being honest about your experience and being present with it. And when we are present and honest about what we're experiencing, I think that opens up space for joy and for laughter and fun and, you know, lighter moments. And what I say to people who are, you know, newly in it and kind of deep in their grief, just keep moving forward. And moving forward can be as small and as simple as, you know, today you get out of bed. Tomorrow, maybe you get out of bed and you brush your teeth. The next day, you know, maybe you add a shower to your routine. Like I'm not, I'm not talking about taking big steps because those early days and weeks and months, they can be debilitating. And I want people to know that that is normal, unfortunately. You know, our bodies and our brains have to go through some like really difficult things in order for the grief to be processed. You know, if, if you're newly grieving and you feel like, you know, sort of foggy and forgetful, like that is called grief brain. And it is a very normal neurological response. And so like, I want people to be really kind and compassionate and gentle with themselves because it is as hard as you think it is. You know, it's, it's not in your head. This pain that you're experiencing is real. And if you honor it and do what you need to do to be okay, like you, you will return to a place of joy and happiness and fun. Yeah. I think most of us are familiar with the book by Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, written back in 1969, originally about the five stages of death, titled On Death and Dying. And after writing it, she realized that, or someone realized, that they were the exact same stages that you go through when, when someone dies. And she wrote another book, published just before her own death, titled On Grief and Grieving, with David Kessler. Uh, and the five stages that they described are denial, that, that feeling of, I just can't believe he or she is gone, anger, depression, bargaining, asking all those what ifs and if onlys, uh, and finally acceptance. And then years after the book was published, David Kessler actually lost his son, yeah. and he went back and wrote another chapter 
uh, about finding meaning. It's about getting through grief by remembering the person who died with more love than pain. We've all seen friends and loved ones go through the grief experience, or we've read about grieving, so we think we know what to expect. We know it's going to make us sad, at least for a while. We know it's going to hurt, at least for a while. But most of us feel like the grief will end and the sun's going to magically come back out. But when your mom died, and later when you lost your pregnancy, you discovered that most of those expectations about grieving are completely wrong. What was your experience, and why do you disagree with the five stages So, theory? for a couple of reasons. Um, one, you know, the initial research, as you noted, was focused not on those of us who are left behind after a loved one dies, but on individuals who are grieving the loss of their own life, you know, folks who are terminally ill. And so I find that it really has been misapplied. Um, the other thing that I don't like about it is I, I believe that there are, there are things, lots of things that we know about grief and loss and trauma and healing that are supported by research and data that can help, you know, most of us, right? But I yeah. also firmly believe that everyone's experience with grief is a bit different. You know, even if you're both grieving, you know, the same family member, like I think about my grief experience and what my healing required versus my sister's. You know, we were both grieving our mom, the same woman. We were raised in the same small house by the same two people. And still yeah. at the end of the day, we needed very different things to come to terms with the loss and figure out how to integrate it into our own lives. I also don't like the stages because so often when we talk about stages, and for me, I've been thinking about this a lot lately in the context of my son. You know, I, I have a toddler now by adoption, very, very fortunate. He's amazing and hilarious. And every parent, especially of a small child, you know, knows there are these developmental stages that you're always looking out for. You know, you go in for the pediatrician appointments and they want to know, are they doing this? Are they doing that? Have they started making these kinds of movements and, you know, whatever. And it's all linear and yeah. nothing about grief is linear. You know, yeah. did I ever think back in 2008 that the loss of my mom would bring me to my knees in 2019. Like, no, that, that would have seemed completely ridiculous to me at the time, right, right. but that's exactly what it did because that is how grief works. Like it is a lived experience that moves with us throughout our lives as we continue to confront the fact that these people who we love very much aren't here with us anymore. And I tried really hard in Grief is Love to make clear that the things that I share, most of which are validated by data and research, you know, not just Marissa's personal experiences, but nonetheless, I want people to use those things as more of a compass. I don't think there is any one specific roadmap or set of steps or stages that can really fully address the experience of grief and loss. Yes, I think that makes a lot of sense. As human beings, we hate pain, right? In fact, yes. we'll do anything to avoid or minimize any kind of pain. You wrote, we exist in a world that tells us if we feel anything that isn't positive, it is our job to make ourselves feel good immediately. And then you wrote, and I loved it, this is a lie. Explain what you meant. So I, I feel like, and, and, and I wrote this, I know that this is a global audience that we're speaking to, but I wrote this specifically thinking about, you know, America and, and how we tend to treat feelings in this country and, you know, thinking about what it looks like to scroll through Instagram, Facebook, and, you know, everyone's perfect pictures and perfectly composed posts. And, it's just not real life. Like fundamentally, we're each born with, I believe it was six innate emotions. Um, and if you look at those emotion, emotional states that like you have from the time you arrive in this world, we judge more than half of them as bad. And I just, it just, it doesn't actually make sense. Like how can things 
that we are born with be inherently bad. You know, we would never look at a newborn child and think that they're bad. So why do we judge these emotional states in this way? Like fundamentally being angry, being in pain, being disappointed, being sad, feeling lonely, frustration, disappointment, you know, all of those things are normal and they're really about being human. And I wanted this book to be really honest about, you know, some of the things that I dealt with and some of the challenging emotions that I have experienced as a result of my losses, because I think it's important for us to just tell the truth. Like there's, there's nothing wrong with you if you are having a hard time following the loss of someone you love. Like it really just means you're human. Yeah. And you, you wrote about the importance of giving yourself permission to feel those emotions. Uh, I think a lot of us who are grieving try to get busy, right? We try to, to get our minds on other things so that Absolutely. maybe we become distracted from feeling the pain of grieving. Um, in your own story, you wrote about how your own pain got so bad that your emotional pain turned into physical pain. And you wrote, and again, I'm going to quote, I <laughs> didn't know it was grief. I hadn't yet given myself permission to even acknowledge the feelings. I feared that if I gave myself permission to press pause and grieve, everything would fall apart. When in reality, it was probably the one thing that would have made things a little easier. Can you talk more about that? Yeah. So I wrote that, um, and it was from the period before my mom died, when I was really in like deep, deep denial about my feelings. And I was, I was struggling. Oh, it was, it was so bad. I, on average, I would sleep you know, probably about four hours a night mm -hmm. um, and was doing a lot of self-medicating. You know, I was a young 20-something living in downtown Manhattan. So drinking copious amounts was, you know, frankly, an easy way to try and cover up my actual feelings. And at the time, I, I really believed that I needed to keep it together. You know, I was first generation college kid working on Wall Street, black woman in a very white world. And I needed to take care of myself financially. And, and I was worried that if I gave in to these feelings, I was just going to completely fall apart. And it turns out, and again, this is one of those things that is not Marissa's opinion. This is research-based and fact-based. The only thing that reduces the power of difficult emotions is naming them. You know, when, when we name them, when we acknowledge them, we reduce their power over us. And so I, I thought it was really important to put that in the book because so often since we're, you know, we've all been kind of conditioned in this society that is so focused on positivity and, you know, I'm good, I got this, et cetera. The idea of actually admitting that you're struggling, that you're suffering, that you're having a hard time, it's a really difficult one for a lot of us to wrap our minds around. And so I wanted people to understand that even though it is often hard to admit and acknowledge these more challenging emotions, that is the one thing that we know for sure helps. And so I just, I wanted to encourage people to be honest about what they're feeling. Yeah. I loved when in your book you wrote about those things you're feeling and all capital letters you wrote, it is all okay. <laughs> you know, let your heart guide you through the grief. Um, we actually make it harder for ourselves when we fail to honor those feelings and emotions uh, because you can't heal what you're unwilling to feel, right? Exactly. Exactly. Some of us have experienced grief from the loss of a loved one. Too many of us uh, have said goodbye to a loved one during the pan pandemic. Uh, but there are other things that can cause feelings of grief, like the loss of a pet or the loss of mm -hmm. a parent or relationship through divorce. Um, even yep. the loss of a job. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. And, and like, I also think about you know, the grief my mother must have experienced when she first got yeah. sick with the MS. You know, she went from being jazzercise, PTA, work full-time, Sunday school teacher mom 
to someone who many days was not able to get out of bed and was in and out of the hospital and in a wheelchair and things like that. And so I, I, I tried to, I tried to make the definition of grief that I wrote in the book expansive enough that it could capture those other experiences with grief. Like I experienced grief when I learned, you know, before I even met the guy that I ended up marrying, um, when I learned I would never be able to conceive naturally and that, you know, infertility was now going to be a part of my story. Like there, there was grief there. And I think, I think fundamentally grief shows up whenever a future that you had both hoped for and planned on is taken away. So whether it's the end of a marriage, the end of a job, loss of health, you know, all of those things can bring about tremendous feelings of grief. When your mom died, you said that you didn't feel safe enough or stable enough to be truly vulnerable. And again, I'm going to read your words back to you. Uh, I've come to recognize that we struggle hardest when we don't feel protected. Vulnerability requires a sense of safety that is not equally distributed in our society. Some of us are too busy to be vulnerable. Some of us are too female, too poor, too gay, or too black for vulnerability. There's no space for it in our lives. I know there are a lot of people listening, shaking their heads. You get this. Um, this podcast has listeners all over the world, and in many cultures alone, grief is stigmatized and people are taught to suppress those feelings. Could you talk about how being a woman of color and your life situation at that time affected your grieving process and your ability to be vulnerable? Absolutely. Um, you know, when you are the only one of something, you know, out in the world, in, in my case, where I worked at the time on Wall Street, I was generally either the only woman or one of two. And I was pretty much always the only black person. And for me, you know, the job was a major professional opportunity and really, it was really important that I did well there and I was successful and well-liked and respected. It was, you know, it was my first job out of college. I knew how much that could matter in the course of my career. And I was not interested in drawing any sort of what I perceived at the time, negative attention to myself. And so while I was absolutely cared for, you know, these, these people shut down the entire banking department so they could be at my mom's funeral. They supported the breast cancer charity that I started and gave me every resource available to get that organization off the ground. Um, they, you know, they offered me just about anything I needed. And still there is something about being an other that makes it really hard to let your guard down and actually communicate what's really going on. I didn't feel comfortable sharing how much pain I was in when I returned to work two weeks after I buried my mom. And so I did my best to hide it. And every day for months, I would get off the subway. And as I was walking from the subway to my office building, I would start having a panic attack. Um, and I could, I could manage to get myself into the building and down to the basement where I would hide in like an empty meeting room and just completely fall apart for, I don't even know exactly how long every morning, to be honest. And the one other woman who worked there, who being the only other woman was assigned as my mentor, she was the person who would come down every morning. She would get me a latte and a cookie and like sit with me while I redid my makeup. And then I would go up to work as though, you know, I was just showing up for the first time and it was the most normal thing in the world. And that was how I existed. And I didn't even know how long I did that for until I was working on the book and had to say to her, you know, Alexa, like, that went on for kind of a while, didn't it? And she was like, oh yeah, months, definitely months. I was like, okay, thanks. Um, 
So that's one way to make a friend for life. I don't recommend it. Um, but she is definitely a part of my ride or die crew. And I'm still so, so grateful for her care and attention to me during that period because I was otherwise alone. I want to talk about honoring the legacy of our loved ones. There are so many culturally driven ways to honor loved ones who have died. Some people have funerals, some choose not to, some have life celebrations. How did you and your family choose to honor your mom? Was the book or the Breast Cancer Foundation your way to honor her? So it's funny, if you had asked me this question 10 years ago, um, I would have said, yes, like, you know, the charity was a big part of it. Having the most perfect funeral ever was a big part of it. But like truly what I have come to believe since then is that so much of legacy and honoring loved ones who are no longer here is deeply internal. Um, you know, I, I don't think the external markers matter as much as we think they do. And I, I think this is especially important because you and I both know so many people were not allowed to do the normal things these last few years when they lost loved ones either to COVID or to something else. And it just wasn't safe to have a traditional funeral service with, you know, hundreds of people right. in one room. Right. right. Um, and so for me, I think the most important things that I do to honor my mom are all about leaning into the values that she worked so hard to instill in me when she was alive. You know, I think about my commitment to generosity. Like it is absolutely rooted in my mom. It didn't matter that we didn't have money most of the time. Like if you needed something, like my mom was going to find a way to give it to you. You know, even if it was the shirt off her back, like that, that's just how I was raised. And so being a really generous person is incredibly important to me. Um, being just a really kind and warm person is also really important to me because that's who my mom was. You know, she was mother to only myself and my sister, but she helped raise tons of other children. And, you know, the number of young people from our community, from our church, from my school who showed up to my mom's funeral. I mean, it was honestly overwhelming. Like, and the mm. stories that I still hear from people, things, things that I just didn't know about, you know, that I learn about now that my mom did for other young people and, and friends of mine um, and how much it mattered to them. So just really being intentional with people and paying attention to them and doing what you can to support them. Like that was so important to her. Um, and then I think a lot about the little things she did that made my childhood feel special that I now try to do for my son. You know, almost every Sunday, even when she was really sick, you got pancakes before church. Like that was just a thing. And so a year ago when Grief is Love came out, that Sunday I made pancakes and like Bennett got to have pancakes for the first time. Um, and so I want to encourage people, especially those who've lost loved ones these last few years and were not able to honor them externally the way that they want to, I want to encourage two things. You know, one, your person's legacy is yours to own and hold indefinitely. So if you missed out on the opportunity to throw the funeral you wanted and you want to do something else in the future, like I, I want to encourage you to do that. Like if that, if that matters to you, if that feels meaningful to you, you should absolutely do that. And then the other thing that I just want to remind people is, you know, so much of, you know, why I think life matters in general is in relation to how we engage with one another and how we treat each other and the experiences that we share with loved ones and even sometimes with, you know, with, with strangers in this life. And so I encourage people to reflect on the impact that their person had on their life and, you know, how you want to carry that forward in terms of your actions and your values indefinitely. Like you are their legacy. That's beautiful. Let's talk about how we can support others, a partner, uh, a spouse, a friend, or a coworker who is grieving. Um, if you and I were friends when mm -hmm. your mom died, what could I have done 
that would have made it better for you? It's a great question. So I, and I will tell you, I get this question in every interview and it's so important and it's usually framed as, you know, what should people say because they don't know what to say. And I like the way you framed it better because what I always say is the worst thing in the world just happened to someone. I am a writer. I love words, but I promise you there is next to nothing you can say that's going to make it any better. And so don't worry as much about what you say and instead focus on what you do. And I put actions in a couple of different categories. So the first one is just showing up and being physically present. You know, there were friends who were there within hours of my mom's death. You know, my mom, my mom died in my childhood home and my roommate from New York at the time, like, came up and like spent the night with me in the house where my mom died. My childhood best friend who my mom was really close to, she drove, you know, four and a half hours from New Hampshire and was there that night, you know, like, like physically being there, even when you haven't figured out in like in any greater detail, how you're going to support the person I do think helps. And I do think it makes a difference. The other category of action is the practical stuff you know, picking up someone's dry cleaning, watching their kid, bringing them a meal, like taking some sort of concrete action that makes their life easier because it has just been completely thrown off course by grief, right? And then the third action, and this is, this is one that I think is important in the immediate aftermath of loss, but is also important down the line. And that is, you know, do something or give them something that reminds them of who they are independent of this horrible loss. Or perhaps it's something that reminds them of the person they lost in a way that brings comfort. So an example of this, when my husband and I lost the pregnancy in 2019, my girlfriend Alexa, the same one who was there in the basement of the investment bank with me every day after my mom died, um, she sent a box of gourmet cheeses and snacks from my favorite cheese shop in New York City um, with a note that was like, you know, I know other people are going to send you bottles of wine and whiskey now that you're allowed to drink again, but you also need to eat. And I know even if you can't eat anything else, like you can always eat cheese, which is true. Like generally speaking, like I can eat cheese and I can eat sweets. Um, and it was just so thoughtful and so genuine and authentic to like who I am, our relationship and the million like cheese boards we've shared over the years that I always tell that story because I'm like, you know, you don't have to do a typical like death gift. Like you don't have to send somebody flowers. Like you should send whatever you feel good, send it. I, I love when you were talking about the word. Sheryl Sandberg, COO of Facebook, I'm, she lost her husband back in 2015. Very suddenly on a family vacation. Yes. And she wrote in her book that uh, even a simple, how are you? Uh, yep. Almost always asked with the best intentions is better replaced with how are you today? She said, when I am asked, how are you? I stop myself from shouting, my husband died a month ago. How do you think I am? Yep. Uh, when I hear, how are you today? I realize the person knows that the best I can do right now is to get through each day. Yep. Um, I heard that from a therapist uh, who's also one of my best friends. Um, because the thing about grief is it, like, it ebbs and flows. And even those early days when you are overwhelmed by it, some days might be a little bit better than others. And so focusing on the one individual day that someone is trying to get through, I think is really important. So I, I love that. I, I encourage people to do the exact same thing. I also want to talk just real briefly about when it's time to get professional help. Uh, according to the American Psychiatric Association, for most people, the symptoms of grief may never go away, but they do decrease over time. However, less than 10% of the people experience prolonged grief disorder, which may require getting professional help. And that's characterized by profound anxiety, intense depression that, that really seriously interferes with their lives. If 
you think you need professional help, go ahead and talk to a healthcare professional or reach out to the employee assistance program. Did you find a therapist helpful? Yes. I, I, so I think, I think often with therapy, we tend to wait until things are just about at like a crisis point. And I want to encourage people to view therapy more like how we view exercise. You know, you don't have to wait until things get to like a certain level of terrible to consult a therapist. And I actually recommend trying to find someone before things get to that level of, oh my God, this is so awful, you know? Um, because for me, yeah, and, and yeah. thankfully a friend at the time, you know, as young as we were, she said, if you really believe your mom is going to die within the next year, two years, whatever, why not look for a therapist now? And it was such great advice because yes, I was stressed and grieving and overwhelmed at that time, but honestly, that was nothing compared to what was coming. Right. And so having someone already in yeah. place was hugely helpful. Like I've had seven, I want to say, different therapists at different points. I have liked some more than others. Mm. I've gotten along better with some than others. Some it's been like, you know, four or five sessions and like I got what I needed and I'm good. Other people I've been with on and off for years. Like every therapy relationship is different. And I, I just want to encourage people to not be afraid to go down that route and to not wait until you're in a really tough spot to try and find someone. Yeah. As we close, I want to touch real briefly on self-care. Um, I loved your ideas uh, in the book about that. Self-care is doing for yourself what your loved one used to do for you. And you wrote about how rebuilding that pillar of love uh, that your loved one used to provide so that if, if she was that cheerleader in your life, get cheering. If he provided the positive words during difficult times, then write out some affirmations for when things get hard. That seems to be a great way to remember and honor a person who is no longer with us. And in so doing, it's really also a healthy reminder to each of us of the impact we can have on each other's yes, lives. Yes, and like... I, I've been very, very fortunate um, to find a number of like surrogate moms, you know, like I know where to go to get that kind of cheerleader vibe. Now, you know, it's my girlfriend, Reshma. I know where to go for the comfort. I know where to go for the advice. And even just the little things like one of my girlfriends is always the friend that I text when I'm like, is this food in the fridge too old or would you still eat it? Which is like so <laughs> silly and random and minor, but it's one of those <laughs> things that just, it comes up a lot in life. Like we have a busy life. We have a toddler. I work, I travel, you know, whatever. And like this thing is in the back of the, I'm like, it looks right. okay. That's it right. smells okay. Should I eat it? Or am I like gambling with this one? Um, so finding those people for you who can play, you know, these various roles that your person played. Like, I just, I think it is a great comfort. So yeah, I, I always encourage folks to find those people because I do think it's super helpful. Marissa, how can we follow you on social media? So I am Marissa Renee Lee on all platforms. That's also my website. You can go there and sign up for my infrequent but always useful newsletter. And you can buy Grief is Love wherever books are sold. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for, for, for your beautifully written book. Uh, and thank you for, for sharing your experiences on this podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I want to pass along five things that MD Live recommends can help you get through a major change in your life, like a death of a loved one. First, and you've heard Marissa say it, give yourself time and allow yourself to grieve. It takes time to accept the change. So expect that and give yourself whatever time it takes. Number two, acknowledge the change and don't ignore your feelings. Marissa calls this naming your feelings. Number three, give yourself regular mental checkups. And if you need help, speak up. Number four, carve out a path forward by having goals and plans that can help you feel like you're more back in control. 
And finally, give yourself a break. Exercise can help when you're feeling depressed or anxious or practice mindfulness and gratefulness. There are many great resources in the HPE Global Wellness Program that are specifically designed to help team members and their family members get through tough times. If you're in the U.S., you'll find those on HPE Wellness. And if you're outside the U.S., you'll find useful wellness resources on the Global Wellness page. In addition, as I mentioned earlier, HPE's Employee Assistance Program has caring experts who can listen and provide the guidance you need to help you get through the stress and sadness associated with grief. To close this episode, I'd like you to hear the words of a poet and artist, David Harkins, who wrote a poem called, She is Gone. Queen Elizabeth read the poem at the funeral of the Queen Mother in 2002. But I hope it's okay. I'm going to change one recurring word throughout the poem. Instead of using the word or, which starts each pair of sentences, listen for the words and then, because as we said today, grief isn't about choosing sadness or happiness. Instead, it's about allowing yourself to grieve and then remembering why you're grieving. You can shed tears that she is gone, and then you can smile because she has lived. You can close your eyes and pray that she will come back, and then you can open your eyes and see all that she has left. Your heart can be empty because you can't see her, and then you can be full of the love that you shared. You can turn your back on tomorrow and live yesterday. And then you can be happy for tomorrow because of yesterday. You can remember her and only that she is gone. And then you can cherish her memory and let it live on. You can cry, close your mind, be empty and turn your back. And then you can do what she would want. Smile, open your eyes, love and go on. My sincere thanks to Marissa Renee Lee for being my guest. And as always, thank you for taking the time to listen. I hope this episode has been helpful. Until next time, please take care of yourself. Let's talk again soon.